I'm 58 years old, so I experienced stuff, I experienced wars in Israel. This has never been anything like that. Coming up on Carolina Connection, the UNC community reacts to the outbreak of the Israel-Hamas war. Good morning, I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. And I'm Savannah Gunter. Also this week, the Supreme Court decision to end affirmative action ends race-conscious admissions at UNC and beyond. The men's basketball team takes a shot at improving their game after underperforming last year. And a historic building on Franklin Street comes back to life after a challenging renovation. I think that's the tough. I think they ran into some problems they weren't expecting in that building. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. The Israeli government is vowing to destroy Hamas after the militant group carried out a surprise attack last weekend, and the effects are being felt by many in the Chapel Hill community. Some have loved ones in the Middle East. Many feel strongly about the implications of the growing conflict. Carolina Connections, Sophia Cassini reports. UNC biology professor Giddy Shimmer was born and raised in Israel. This week, he's been consumed with emotion about the safety of family members who took cover in bunkers because of the Hamas attack. I heard once like someone describe mourning of his partner saying, I'm inhaling, exhaling, inhaling, exhaling, and give it a bit of time. That's kind of like right now, inhaling, exhaling, taking care of daughters here, that we need to make sure that they, they feel safe. Shimmer says he knows several people who were killed, including personal friends and kids of friends. Others are still kidnapped. His wife, an occupational therapist, is working with a young adult whose cousin was murdered. I'm 58 years old, so I experienced stuff, I experienced wars in Israel. This has never been anything like that. It's nothing like that. There are 1,200 people who were murdered, and there are still people kidnapped over there, and we don't know what's going on with them. So, yeah, it's a tough one. Giddy is among many people in the Triangle who are experiencing grief. Nama Shaked is an Israeli immigrant who works as a real estate agent in Wake County. Her mother and several other family members are back in Israel. She says Israelis here are mourning. I'm saddened to see what I've seen today, for example, actually here in UNC. Um, we've seen people write very sad things on, on the floor. Uh, I think it was in Franklin Street that had to do with, you know, Palestine and, um, you know, against Israel. And it just, in this time, it was very sad to see. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Thursday, students for justice in Palestine demonstrated in front of UNC's Wilson Library. They called for the U.S. to stop supporting Israel. Some carried signs that said, no occupation and Zionism will not win. They expressed anger about the civilians killed in Gaza by Israeli retaliation and Israel's decision to cut off electricity and water to the region. Nearby, other people waved Israeli flags. Some of them held signs that said, rape is not resistance, or that equated Hamas with SJP. One pro-Israeli protester was led away by police after he confronted the demonstrators and called them Nazis. UNC PhD candidate Kylie Broderick 
taught a class on the Israel-Palestine conflict two years ago. She says the Palestinians are not instigators. Palestinians, when they commit acts of violence, are already working within a system in which they are entirely unviolenced. They cannot be more violent than the occupation. And so they are not aggressors. They are victims of a long-standing occupation and colonialism that began more than 100 years ago. But Nama Shaked says none of this justifies the Hamas attack. I myself have criticism on Israel as an Israeli. However, this is not the relationship between Palestine and Israel. This has to do with a terrorist organization that attacked people while they were sleeping in their homes. And nothing, nothing in the world can justify it. Professor Giddy Shimmer has expressed similar sentiments about the conversation surrounding the war being equated to a conversation about Palestinian liberation. The Palestinians are wrong. No, the Israelis are wrong. You see, you do this and you do that. That's not the story. We have time for that debate, always. That, con- that conflict is not going to go away. Not soon, unfortunately. In a statement this week, UNC Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz said the university condemns all forms of violence and mourns all lives lost, and that UNC's focus is prioritizing students. In Chapel Hill, this is Sophia Cazzini. President Biden has expressed full support for Israel and plans to ask Congress for an aid package that will include both Israel and Ukraine. But that's complicated by the political fight among House Republicans who deposed former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. To talk about the impact of a frozen Congress, we spoke earlier this week with 4th District Democratic Congresswoman Valerie Fushi. She represents Orange, Durham, Alamance, Granville, and Person counties. Representative Fushi, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. First, can you tell me about how not having a Republican speaker in the House is affecting your goals as Congresswoman? Well, first, let me just say that this is a very serious and solemn moment for our country. Um, given where we are and not having um, a speaker in place such that we can do our legislative responsibilities. As you know, that without a speaker, we cannot perform any legislative duties. So regardless of whether it's talking about what we were wanting to do um, at the district level, uh, we can't do anything legislatively because we cannot do any legislative business without having a speaker in place. So certainly we want that to be remedied as soon as possible. Do you think the events of this past weekend in Israel at all underscore the importance of having a speaker or a government that works well? Well, of course, um, understanding what has happened um, now since Saturday morning, uh, this, this could be the worst possible time for us to not Um, be able to perform any legislative duties. Uh, What we can do and what we have been doing is following the um, lead from the administration. Uh, President Biden has been clear on how he wants us to move forward with our support of Israel. And so until we can talk about what we can do by way of bringing forward a legislative package at all, We have to have that person in place that uh, will gavel us in and give us the opportunity to vote on legislation, whether it's about uh, appropriations or whether it's about how we um, engage in that support for Israel. We have to be able to meet officially and, and vote on those aspects of how we move forward. Do you sense any urgency to reconvene? 
Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I, particularly on our side of the aisle, um, I really can't speak for Republicans, but I would, I would submit to you that I believe that the majority of them want to govern. Um, the majority of the Republican conference want to do what they were sent here to do. There's only a small number that is holding that up. And um, I, I, we just want all of us to realize that we have duties to perform. And until we put the proper process in place, such as um, electing a speaker, we can't do that. Um, but yes, there's a real sense of urgency. I know that November 17th deadline is approaching. <laughs> yeah. Do you anticipate a government shutdown? I know that's not something you can say for sure. It's not something I can say for sure, but what I will say to you is that it is my hope that we will elect a speaker soon, that we will move forward um, to discussing, bringing to the floor these appropriations bills so that we can put a budget in place, not just another CR, not just another continuing resolution, but we will do our business as we have been elected to do and put a budget in place. Uh, but if not, because I am a realist, but if not, that we will ensure that the government continues to function beyond November 17th. Thanks, Congresswoman Fushi. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. It was my honor. Thank you so much for asking. Democratic Congresswoman Valerie Fushi represents North Carolina's 4th District and joined us earlier this week from Washington. On June 29th, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected affirmative action, declaring the race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and UNC unlawful. This decision will have implications on admission policies, financial aid decisions, and the future of diversity efforts on campuses across the nation. Reporter Tiani Wong has the story. We will hear argument first this morning in case 21707, Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina. Mr. Strawbridge. Mr. Chief Justice. The sixth history majority opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts decreed that race can no longer be considered a factor in admissions, compelling higher education institutions to explore alternative methods for achieving diverse student bodies. Jenna Robinson, the president of James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal, a nonprofit institute dedicated to improving higher education, says that the nation cannot remedy past discrimination with racial preferences. The best way to end racial discrimination is to stop discriminating based on race. And so the what racial preferences were doing were in fact discriminating based on race. It was in a way that many Americans agreed with because they said it was making up for past discrimination. Um, but in fact, if your goal is get to get to a society where there is no discrimination based on race, then one step has to be that the government stops discriminating based on race. Erika Wilson, a professor at the UNC School of Law, specializes in civil rights, education law, and public policy. She says getting rid of race-conscious college admissions will have negative consequences in building up the campus community for public institutions like UNC. It is very likely that um, unless the university changes its admissions policies, particularly its reliance on the way it um, 
uses grades and test scores that you will see a decrease in the number of traditionally underrepresented um, groups, uh, African Americans, Latinos, uh, some uh, Asian uh, subgroups, Native Americans, um, etc. As admissions offices scramble to comply with the ruling, UNC has announced two initiatives to expand access. The first program, beginning in 2024, promises free tuition to students whose annual household income is less than $80,000. The second expands the university's recruitment in underserved communities to increase socioeconomic diversity on campus. Robinson says such methods are effective to contribute to a diverse student body. We will see more low-income students, which is something that is missing at UNC's campus. It will also mean that there are more rural students um, and more inner city students. And so I think that this method will actually get you a, a broader version of diversity than overt racial preferences. Students are still demanding more in protecting those with historically underrepresented identities on campus. In the morning when the Supreme Court heard oral arguments of the case, Students from the UNC Affirmative Action Coalition traveled to Washington, D.C. to express their support for affirmative action. Toby Pazell, the co-policy chair of Affirmative Action Coalition, says the organization is developing a list of student demands and consulting with different student groups to expand the scope of educational equity. Affirmative action is under attack, and more broadly, you know, diversity on college campuses is, is really under attack. Um, and so I think for our group, it's about, you know, remaining vigilant and trying to understand more concretely what the university um, is, is going to do to ensure that they remain committed to issues of equity in, in their um, academic admissions process. Amy Lockler Hertel, the executive vice provost, says the Office of the Provost will continue work with the deans and other academic leaders to go through questions regarding application review, recruitment efforts, and scholarships. The university is also exploring a training module for all admissions readers and committee participants to build a diverse community together. In Chapel Hill, I'm Tian Yuang. The building at the northeast corner of Franklin and Columbia Streets which once housed Spanky's Restaurant, has been empty since 2021. National fast food chain Raising Cane's has been planning to move in since then, but the journey has been far from easy. Now it's finally announced its grand opening. Carolina Connection's Samantha Hoffman reports. The scaffold is off the building, and UNC students Russell Amertia and Anani Anduri are ready for some chicken. I'm excited. It looks like a great spot. Um, I love like experiencing other food. I tried it once in Colorado, in Denver, and I've been dreaming about it ever since. <laughs> they have just one question shared by many for the past two years. When's the opening? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though the red, yellow, and shimmering gold interior looks ready for opening day, the journey has not looked so pretty. At the end of 2021, fast food chicken chain Raising Cane's bought the 101 East Franklin Street property for $3.88 million, according to Orange County Records. It was previously home to the iconic Spanky's restaurant for 44 years. Spanky's gained fame for its unique Georgetown influence, daring menu, and liquor by the drink bar, says its owner Greg Overbank. It made a tremendous mark, and it, it really showed people that if you opened a nice restaurant that you could do well on Franklin Street. Spinky's underwent a name and menu change to Lula's in 2018 
In efforts to gain more traction following loss in sales due to their strict ID policies, increased competition, and a lack of parking. Even with a cheaper menu, they didn't have enough business to stay afloat on the competitive Franklin Street. It was starting to get some traction and you know, getting a regular client base, but then COVID came along. So Raising Canes originally set a spring 2023 opening day, but after discovering plumbing and electrical problems, Kane spent an additional $2.5 million on remodeling, according to the permit filed with the town of Chapel Hill. That's a lot of chicken tenders to sell. I don't think they sell alcohol. You have to get back many, many millions of dollars that you've invested in that property. But uh, I think they ran into some problems they weren't expecting in that building. The intersection of Franklin and Columbia Street, being in the heart of Chapel Hill's restaurant strip, is among the highest in rent in the area and the fastest property turnaround. There are now two vacancies, including what was Seafood Destiny Express, which closed just two years after opening. However, across the New Canes, the iconic Top of the Hill restaurant has stood strong for the past 27 years. Assistant General Manager at Top of the Hill, Jeff Wardwell, credits this to their focus on the Chapel Hill community, as well as their general adaptability through difficult times. The restaurant industry is tough. It's fast moving, it's fast paced, and you know, just willing to take the good with the bad. And the more you do that, you, the more the customers trust in your abilities and your brand, and over time, they just keep coming back. Top of the Hill has undergone both expansion and downsizing projects to follow their demand. Despite the threat of new restaurants taking business, Wordwell encourages developers to build on Franklin to grow Chapel Hill as a destination. But we want to encourage, you know, growth for the whole town. Instead of, you know, trying to outcompete every our neighbors, we kind of work together with them. Though Franklin is now dominated by restaurants and quick dining, its history looks far different. 101 East Franklin Street, built in 1902, was once a grocery store, skating rink, movie theater, and drugstore before adding to the restaurant landscape. Both Overbank and Wardwell share a desire for more diverse shops on Franklin. I'd like to go see some more galleries or go see some, you know, a museum of another kind and can kind of diversify the the options. While there are many challenges for the new restaurant, there sure are a lot of community supporters ready for chicken. Every late night I'll, I'll walk past it. It's like being built. I remember when the scaffolding was still up front, uh, but now it's like finally going to be here. So it's dope. Just that. Yeah, I, I can't wait until I can feast on some chicken fingers. <laughs> Raising Cane's leader and cook Jeremy Strayhorn announced the restaurant's grand opening will take place on November 7th. In Chapel Hill, I'm Samantha Hoffman. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Savannah Gunter. And I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. Turning to sports, the UNC men's basketball team failed to reach postseason play last year. But with key returning players and new additions to the roster, the Heels are looking to bounce back. With more on the story, here's Kinsley Brady. After making it to the national championship in 2022, the UNC men's basketball team had high expectations for the 2022-2023 season. The Heels were ranked preseason number one and a favorite to make another run after returning four starters. However, the Heels quickly fell out of the rankings and did not make it to the NCAA tournament. With the Heels returning only two starters and adding new faces to the roster, the team is looking to have a redemption year. Notre Dame transfer Cormac Ryan says the team is focused around improvement. 
I think we're all really hungry, and for me that was a huge positive. You know, I, I think being a hungry team, having something to prove, uh, you know, that that's a good place to be. And you know, we've got a lot of guys who this is their last year playing, myself included, and you know, leave, leaving it all out on the line and, and making sure we're kind of in the right headspace to go and compete and win a lot of games. With the Hills changing the team dynamic with new additions, the morals of Carolina basketball stay the same. Head coach Hubert Davis says his expectations of Carolina basketball will be followed. I wrote down the list and this is what we're doing. The foundation of our faith, that this is this is who we are, this is where we are. Core defense, this is who we are. We're going to be on, on, on the offensive end and um, it is what it is. The standard is a standard. And so if you don't want to be a part of it, then you're not going to play. While this will look like a new team, Coach Davis will lean on veteran players from previous years and from the transfer portal to lead the team. Returning star Armando Baycott says the additions make the Hills more versatile. Last year we had a lot of guys that could score off the dribble. I mean, we had Caleb who could really score the ball and a high clip off the dribble. But I mean, I think we look at the team now, RJ is really the guy that can score off the dribble and then we got Cormac who can knock down shots. We got Ellie who can pass the ball and uh, pass and shooter. So we got guys that have more of like a defined role versus having like two lead guards that want to score the ball. The Heels are returning RJ Davis, who was their leading scorer last season. After Caleb Love transferred to Arizona, Davis will share point guard responsibilities with freshman Elliot Cadeau. RJ Davis says he will step in in any way to help the team. Whatever the team needs me to be, um, that's what I'm going to do. If it benefits the team, then so be it. Um, you know, I've you know, played the one and the two, so I think that's what makes me such, such a special player. With new additions and returners, the team will have to adjust to finding a new leader and gelling together on the court. Coach Davis says that finding team chemistry has not been a problem in the limited time the team has been together. From the start, there's never been an issue about um, preparing, practicing, and playing um, with a competitive fight and a com competitive nature. And so I really love that. And then the, the other part is this, this group genuinely enjoys being around each other, whether it's on the court, or off the court, they just um, enjoy the experience of um, doing this together. With the season set to tip off November 6th against Radford, the Hills are hoping to start their road to redemption early. From Chapel Hill, I'm Kinsley Braddy. Now for more sports news, we are joined by Carolina Connections Henry Taylor and the Daily Tar Heels Lucas Tomei to talk about UNC football. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Savannah. So, Lucas, UNC football has yet to lose a game this season. What factors do you think helped the team achieve this streak? Yeah, the Tar Heels are off to their best start since the 1997 season. And I think what makes this team stand out from, you know, UNC teams of seasons past is they're just really balanced from all levels. Of course, they have an excellent quarterback and Drake May under center, but this is a team that can pass the ball, run the ball, and for the first time in a couple of years, their defense is really solid and can get stops when they need to. So altogether, they're able to put up really solid game plans and scheme against other teams in ways that they've struggled in the past. You know, in, in past seasons, they've struggled against rushing quarterbacks or containing the run. And this season, they're kind of tight from all areas, which has really made the difference this year. So tonight, UNC kicks off against Miami's football team, hoping to continue that hot winning streak. What should UNC fans expect out of this game? Yeah, I would call this UNC's biggest test of the season yet. Miami is the first ranked opponent that UNC is going to play this year. And 
just in general with the history of the Hurricanes football, it means something different when you're playing the Hurricanes. Uh, They're an excellent program. UNC coaches and players this week, they all talked about how fast this Miami offense was. Their their wide receivers and their running backs all have this speed that can really push through a defense, break down a secondary. What defensive coordinator Gene Chizik said is the UNC – defensive line is going to have to really utilize its depth, especially led by players like senior defensive lineman Miles Murphy and even some some younger guys like Travis Shaw. They're going to really be splitting time and, and going all out to sort of contain the speed of this Miami team. All right. That was the Daily Tar Heels' Lucas Tomei. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. That was Henry Taylor and the Daily Tar Heels' Lucas Tomei. Thanks again. The North Carolina State Fair just opened in Raleigh. Along with rides, games, cotton candy, and prizes, livestock competitions remain a fair tradition. One competition lets kids and teenagers show off their rams. It's called the Junior Weather Meat Goat Showmanship. Caroline Horn reports. And you're participating in the goat show today? Yes, ma'am. How are you feeling? I'm very anxious, but this is my ninth year or so, so I'm pretty sure I'm good. <laughs> Have you been to the state fair to compete before? Oh yes, many, many times. Avonlea Pettit of Johnson County is no stranger to the world of goat competitions, and at 14 years old has competed with over 20 different goats. She has been at the fair since early in the morning, setting up equipment and washing her goat, Frank who she has had for less than a year. The state fair is the biggest goat competition she has been to, and the goat exhibitors and competition she sees each year are like a community to her. Roughly 300 came to this year's show. Winners receive profits from placing the goats on the market following the show, but a winning goat is nothing without a hardworking exhibitor. Superintendent of the Junior Market Weather Goat Showmanship and retired agricultural extension agent Ron Hughes said that some kids have been coming to the show for years. These kids have worked with these animals all year, so it's more about them than it is their animal. It's the way they present the the animal to the judge. And he watches what they do, like eye contact, uh, the way they handle that goat, the way they view, so they just get the best view of that animal. And they've worked with this a long time, so it's more about showmen, how they do it, and it makes the show go so much easier once they learn the techniques that we're looking for. Hughes said that goat shows are new to the state fair, despite having started in 1996. He said that shows such as sheep, cattle, and hogs are much older. These livestock competitions have been an integral part of the state fair, and this year there are over 20 different competitions across the 10 days of the fair. Zachary Keeter, an NC State student and part-time worker at the Department of Agricultural State Fair Division, said that having been an exhibitor growing up, he enjoys coming back to the junior exhibitor shows and giving back to the program. Most of these kids go to school and then they come home and go straight to the barn uh, and they're there until until dusk. So, I mean, you know, that may be uh, feeding and walking. Uh, It's a lot of preparation in to get your goat to to have that perfect stride that you want, uh, learning how to set up. Also, bracing, uh, that's a big piece of it as well. Peter said that the junior livestock shows will continue through the end of the fair, but the contestants can't get too attached to their goats. After the competition, female goats are sold to breeders and male goats are put on the market to be sold or harvested. The champion animals will be sold October 22nd. 
In Chapel Hill, I'm Caroline Horn. When you walk around UNC's campus, you'll notice that many students have headphones on. But have you ever wondered what they're listening to? Carolina Connections' Sia Zhang asked students about their favorite album. My name is Ellie Tragio, and my favorite album is Blonde by Frank Ocean. That's the way every day. Um, I love it because I think it's one of the only albums where I've really appreciated every single song. And I just think he has an amazing voice and uh, the story he tells within his songs is really cool. My name is uh, Kendall Brandt and my favorite album would be uh, Modal Soul by a Japanese DJ named Nujibas. He passed away a few years ago. I think this is my favorite album because I started listening to it since high school and this consisted of very chill hip-hop beats. My name is Lizzie Cox and my favorite album is Rumors by Fleetwood Mac because it's really versatile and I would listen to it a lot growing up with my parents and whenever I listen to it now it reminds me of home. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Kevin Paris. I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. And I'm Savannah Gunter. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and X at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.